Hello, and welcome to everything you ever wanted to know about the EU, but were too afraid, stroke polarized, stroke bored, stroke disenfranchised to ask. Everyone is a bit confused about the EU at the moment. Like we don't know. There's like there seems to be like Nazis everywhere who are winning elections, and people are depressed and scared of the downfall of democracy. And we are here to help you. Well, not me specifically because I am not the expert. We have some excellent experts here. We have first on my left Sofia Diogo Mateos. Hello, hello. Uh, we have Kit Holden. Hello. And Mr. John Worth. Hello. Uh, do you want to introduce yourselves? Okay, um, so my name is John Worth. Um, I'm a blogger about European Union politics, um, uh, and I uh, teach European Union politics and negotiation at the College of European Bruges. Uh, my name is Sofia Diog Mateos. I am a Deutsche journalist, and I've studied Europe a little bit too much, to be fair, so let's stick at that. <laughs> My name is Kit Holden and I'm uh, a, a sports hack uh, with a, an unhealthy interest in the EU, but I am of these three these three panellists probably, you know, the saying a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, well I'm the person who has the dangerous little bit of knowledge. Um, so I'm, I'm going to act as a bridge between people, you out there who, who know nothing about the EU and don't care about it, and these people who know everything and, and care very deeply. Good, and I'll be the bridge to your bridge, probably. <laughs> Uh, good. So first question, we've had these questions sent in by people on Facebook and Twitter. And um, first one, it comes from our friend Megan, and it's specifically for Sophia. Can you actually make a Wii diagram and explain it all again, it being the EU? So you actually did offer to do this once on our podcast. And, and she says, I've sort of forgotten what the three bits are again. Just a wee back of the cocktail napkin number will do nicely. So you start that one. So let's break it down into the interesting political parts and leave the non-interesting political parts out. And by non-interesting, I mean all the things that people don't get elected or meaningful conversations for in a non-geek way. Start with a commission, which is kind of a glorified civil service of the EU, um, which John doesn't agree with because it's pulling a face on me, but I'm going to go on with this. It's It's got legislative powers and executive powers. It, it receives its orders from the other main body, which is the European Council, where, which is where all the heads of government uh, meet. So that would be Merkel, Sanchez, Macron, all those people. And they set the political direction of the EU on behalf of their countries. Um, then you have the European Parliament, which are the people that are going to be elected at some point during this week, who have the ability to talk about legislative affairs, but not really initiate it in collaboration with the Commission and with the Council of Ministers, which is a colloquial name for another configuration of the European Council, where the ministers of the countries for, say, finance and so on, meet. I disagree a bit with that. If we were to make the closest comparison between how a country's institutions work and how the EU works, the European Commission is basically the government and the civil servants are working for it. So it's the closest you've got to something resembling the UK cabinet. 
it basically sets the direction of what needs to be done. It initiates legislation. What it can't do is actually decide legislation, and for that there are two legislative bodies. There's the, part, there's the Chamber of the People, which is the European Parliament, and there's the Chamber of the States, which is the Council of the European Union. So you have one executive body, the Commission, and two legislative bodies, the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union. And then in addition to that, you have the European Council, which is similar to the Council of the European Union, but it's not the same thing, because it contains heads of state and government. The challenge is, of course, is that the European Council doesn't actually decide legislation, it sets the overall direction of the European Union. Um, and so essentially, the, they don't get involved in the nitty-gritty of everyday passing of legislation. It's not, however, strictly correct that the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union both decide on the laws that get proposed by the European Commission. So the European Parliament does actually have legislative power, it's not just a talking shop. I think I'm just going to sort of row back and put, put that all in, in sort of like simple language Wikipedia terms. Um, and yeah, but to, to wrap up, we have three parts. And the first part is the heads of state. So Theresa May, Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron all sit around the table and go, mm, what, what kind of direction do we want the EU to go in? Do we want it to go towards the edge of a cliff and into the fiery furnaces below? Or do we want it to, to go to the sunlit uplands? And they all decide sunlit uplands and tell... The other two bits, the Commission and the Parliament, uh, we want to go to the Sunday Uplands, please. And the Parliament is obviously voted by we the people, apart from when we don't bother to turn out to vote because we're bored already. Um, and uh, should we should turn out to vote in greater number. Um, and the Commission is, as John says, the government, or as Smith says, the civil service, but it's basically the bit that gets stuff done uh, and does the nitty-gritty and comes up with all the impenetrable terms that uh, make people switch off. Next thing, the EU election. How does it work? Like, it's very confusing for me because if you're British, which I am, you, you have an MEP. But I am also German, and that means that I get voted, that like, I can only vote for a party, and then I don't know who I'm voting for. I get these lists, don't I? Some countries have lists, and some countries have constituencies. It's not quite true. Um, oh. All countries have lists, actually. But how those lists are sorted out and how the constituencies are drawn depends on the country. So in Germany, Germany's all like one constituency and it elects 96 members of the European Parliament for the entire country. Britain, you break it down into regions like the South East, the South West, London, North East and so on. And each of those regions elects between three and 11 MEPs. But there in the UK, you only can vote for a party, you can't vote for an individual candidate. You should see the European Parliament elections as like 28 national election systems all bolted together, but all electing members of the European Parliament to the same parliament for a five-year elected period. There's also four election days from Thursday to a Sunday because the Dutch and the British vote Thursdays, the Irish Fridays, the Czechs Saturdays and everyone else on Sundays. And so that's therefore the reason why there are four election days um, as well. So it's basically like 28 election systems, but electing everyone to the same parliament. And why do some people complain about, um, you know, like some people's votes being more powerful than other people's votes? That's because the numbers of MEPs a country gets given is not exactly proportional to that, that country's population. So um, Malta, the smallest country, has six MEPs. Germany, the largest, has 96, but the ratio of the population is 1 to 200. So essentially Malta ought to get 1 and Germany ought to get 200, but it's not exactly the same. That's kind of evened out by the other institution, the Council of the European Union, where it's not one state, one vote. So you can argue about that in terms of its quality, in terms of uh, European federalism. But in simplest terms, it means one MEP in Malta represents about 60,000 people and one MEP in Germany represents about 600,000. Oh, good. <laughs> that sounds fair, doesn't it?
<laughs> compare it to the United States, right? The House of Representatives, uh, the smallest state in the USA gets one representative and the biggest 52, and they all get two senators each. Right? Now, in the European Parliament, it's not exactly proportional to population, but also in the Council of the European Union, all of the states are not altogether exactly equal there either. So in a federal system, which is what the European Union is essentially approaching, you need to find a way and a means of having a representation of the states and a representation of the people now. And it therefore means that just going every single voter's vote has to be automatically equal uh, is not uh, is not necessarily so, because the German government is more powerful in the EU than the Maltese is. So if I vote for a German government, the German government's going to have more say in the EU than the Maltese government, whereas if I vote for a Maltese MEP, I'm going to have more power than a, than a German MEP, or sorry, I, I'll be, I'll, I'm sorry, there'll be fewer Maltese voting for one MEP in Malta. So it kind of evens itself out. And I was going to say that's called a regressive proportionality, if I'm not mistaken. And the idea of it is by design. And I know this pisses off some people, but coming from a small country, and I'm going to insert myself here as the token one, uh, the small southern country person, this for us has been a big sell because before this logic, the idea would be that we literally have no power. We can't, we don't really have a say. We don't really, we just go, I mean, I think we still have very little of a say but we still have a bit more of a say with this logic so would would the smaller countries have have more and i, and I would like to sort of clarify here when i said that's fair in a very kind of dismissive way about two minutes ago i didn't didn't quite mean to say that the whole system was was completely bankrupt and uh, weighted towards the smaller countries unfairly um but yeah does that mean that if parliament is well balanced towards to, to help the smaller countries have a voice uh, but other bits of the, the European Union aren't. If there was uh, a greater turnout in, in a European election, would it be a, a more balanced project? No, I think John is nodding and I agree. I just, I don't think you can take the European Parliament out of the system. The idea is that these three interact with each other and we've designed a parliament to try to balance out the imbalances in the design. So that's, that's the idea of it. I mean, you can't do it. This isn't a perfect system. And I think this is probably the biggest problem that we have with the EU and any government for that matter, where people expect it to be ideally designed in a way that functions perfectly and is fair to everyone that's just not possible the idea is to balance it out and if you compare how the eu works to the way big countries work like the way the german governmental system works it's not too bad right um also you have the situation in the uk where rural areas which have a lower population end up being slightly overrepresented in parliament as well because not all constituencies are exactly the same size so yeah it's i think we can live with it Good. This next question comes from Josie on Facebook. How is the president of the commission appointed and how does this differ from how it was done before it changed at some point? Has the change made the EU more democratic or not? Can I, can I sort of start uh, by sort of bridging the gap between the last bit and this bit and, and kind of talking about how, what the parliament looks like? Because I feel like a lot of people, when they're in an election, they think about kind of nice TV graphics with different coloured blocks and, and things like that. And albeit, yes, it is lots of different electoral systems bolted onto each other. There is one parliament and it has all these blocks. So perhaps we could explain what major blocks there are and what they do and how they work. What basically happens is all of the political parties that are similar to each other all collaborate together. So the biggest so-called political group in the European Parliament is the centre-right. So it's the so-called European People's Party group. So that contains things like the German uh, Christian Democrats 
uh, and uh, parties like Les Républicains in France. That they have just over 200 members of the European Parliament. The second largest group is the centre-left with 180-odd MEPs, the S&D groups. That contains parties like uh, the uh, Spanish Social Democrats or the Swedish Social Democrats. Um, but neither of those groups is close to getting majority on their own uh, because there are 751 members of the European Parliament. And there is, no, there is no set coalition in the European Parliament. They make a coalitions on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. After those two large groups, then all the other groups are considerably smaller, you then have, um, uh, I'm then just going to go through them, kind of from left to right across the European Parliament. You have the group of the United European Left, um, so that's the kind of communists, reform communists and left-wing Greens, uh, that has about 50 MEPs. The Greens and the Regionists, the so-called Greens EFA group, have about 60. You then have the centralist older group, the Liberals, that have 70-something members of the European Parliament at the moment, and projected to go up quite strongly after the European elections. You then have the slightly oddly named European Conservatives and Reformist Group, which sounds like a contradiction in its very name, um, that uh, is the party that has the British Conservatives and Law and Justice from Poland in it, also with about 70 MEPs. And then on the populist right, you have um, two groups at the moment, Europe of Freedom and Direct Democracy, which contains the UK Independence Party and the Cinque Stelle movement from Italy, and the ENF group, which is basically the, the post-fascists fascists, uh, of the, the FPÖ in Austria, as it's in there, for example. So basically, you collaborate with parties that have the same sort of political colour to you, and then you try to make a majority based on a collaboration between two or three of those groups in order to manage to get a thing passed uh, in the uh, European Parliament. And when people say um, you should vote for pro-EU or anti-EU parties, who do they mean? Like, who's the who's a who's a, a pro-EU party and who's an anti-EU party? Now, this is a bit of contention because I mean, I think you could. I mean, the easy answer would be to say everybody, but. The last few people on the right in that kind of <laughs> extremist corner. The EFDD. Uh, yeah. yeah. And the ENF. And the ENF. Which one is, is Nigel Farage? In He's in the FDD. He's in the FDD. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of kind of Judean people's front, people's front of Judea uh, splitters uh, thing going on, on that on that far right corner. But they're basically all out to, to scupper the whole thing. Um, but then there are kind of little little problems within the, the European People's Party, which we could get into with Fiat. Yes, though I don't think we should really underestimate very much how much they may gain in terms of seats in the coming election. So let's keep that in mind. So, you know, when people say you are, when you vote for these people, you are increasing the amount of people who are anti-EU in the European Parliament. They do mean that. Um, what I was going to do is actually answer Josie's question because um, we explained the parliament and then went straight into voting for it but maybe we should go and try um, uh, the logic of explaining the president the candidates for a president job or Spitzenkandidaten in German so this logic and John might have to correct me I think was only introduced in 2014 right and the point with it being that, like John said at the beginning, and we sort of disagree, the commission does does have a, a huge amount of power. And the idea was these people were just being nominated and picked. Can we derive, like you would in a normal government, a head of state sort of thing? Can I just suggest so, so previously the commission was just picked by... By the council, by the heads of government. Yeah. Like normally a former head of government from another European country. I, we Portugal had one, for example. Uh, 
unfortunately yes portugal's had it yeah. belgium every, every, italy like yeah, there's and, been plenty of them that's the phrase unelected bureaucrats exactly so in 2014 this logic was introduced and so each of the main blocks that kate mentioned puts forward one person which then kind of gives technically voters more of a sense who they'll be voting for and how that translates into translates in terms of commission now at present you have manfred weber is the european people's party so german cdu franz timmermans for the socialists he's a dutchman um you have people are running for commission president yes via yeah via the european elections yes that delightful man yeah that delightful man who we all love uh and that is basically the guy who represents the eu on the international stage and does press conferences with donald trump and things like that Yes, though you also have Tusk at times doing that now, but let's not talk about that. In reality, only one of these two people that we've mentioned will probably actually become the uh, the commission uh, president, but there's still Margaret Vestager, who is doing it for the Liberals, Ska Keller, who's doing it for the Greens, and Nico Kue for the European left. The important thing is that... It, it was tried out the first time in 2014, and it was relatively uncontroversial because the European People's Party clearly came out first in the elections and the European People's Party was relatively united behind the former Luxembourg Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker. So it essentially worked without there being that much controversy around it. The problem this time is the European People's Party isn't really with all their might behind Manfred Weber. Indeed, we're doing this podcast in Berlin and there's basically nothing to be seen of Manfred Weber in the German election campaign, let alone the election campaign Europe-wide. And so therefore, this very idea of kind of personalising the European election campaign to say, if you vote right, you're going to get Weber. If you vote left, you get Timmermans. Like, that doesn't actually work unless the parties actually put those people front and centre. And in my experience across Germany anyway, neither the CDU nor the SPD is prioritising their people. And so therefore, essentially, the voters don't really see how that process works. I was just going to add something that I think a lot of people, uh, and we do that and forget, is that... A lot of what you see in the European elections is actually more of a result of national politics than it is of European politics. And I think you can see that in Germany. The people that you have on posters are well-known national figures who often don't have any sort of European experience before they actually get shipped off to Europe to do something. And that means that the disconnect isn't just in the system, it's also in the way the parties behave at a national level. So, but why why is this the case? If for... Manfred Weber and uh, Dusselblum and Vestia and all these people have been nominated by their blocks. Uh, how have they been nominated? Uh, so they've been chosen by an internal party process at a party congress where delegates to, say, the European Greens from all of the European Greens member parties all then in a ballot voted for who they would then nominate and put forward. It has not been done directly among party members, so it's been indirectly done internally within each of those parties. But it's the same for each party, each party yes. nomination. More or less, yes. It's not exactly the same, but it's usually delegates of the National yeah. Party voting in Brussels. So in theory, you have a block, a, a pan-European block in each uh, sort of party, each part of the political spectrum that has nominated somebody who they want to be European Commission President and put that forward as the head candidate uh, yeah. to be European Commission President for the people of Europe. That sounds pretty normal, pretty democratic, pretty straightforward. Why then do they not put those people on the campaign posters? 
because that makes the national politicians feel bad if there's someone from somewhere else who is kind of taking the shine off them. Um, particularly if you're Katerina Bali and you're a bit boring and uh, Francis Timmermans is actually interesting and compelling, uh, you don't really want to talk about him, the cynic would say. Uh, and perhaps when the Christian Democrats, because Manfred Weber is from Bavaria and we're in Berlin, that perhaps maybe explains why we don't hear much of him either. Well, isn't this the big problem with the EU generally? Is that the national parties have like hold it in contempt? I don't say they would hold it in contempt. The thing is, is that in the end, party politics is a game of strong egos. And when those egos come up against each other, you can play it more or less to your advantage or not. Um, politics, party politics can be a tricky game. But don't they try and like shift their like like their least popular, least interesting politicians into European elections? Is that not what happened? I don't think so. I, I I would say that Timmermans is one of the most interesting people that the socialists have got. Thus, I count as one of the most interesting people that the Greens have got. Um, Kuhn is actually quite interesting for the European left, although he feels a little bit out of the kind of everyday debate. Vester has been a very compelling commissioner. I just the the big gap for me is Weber and the EPP because the he won out over. Alexander Stubb, quite a charismatic former Finnish Prime Minister. If they put Stubb into the running, it would have been genuinely interesting. Whereas putting Weber, um, a guy who also speaks English in a kind of thank you for traveling with Deutsche Bahn type of style, um, into an international debate, uh, it, 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 it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't come across very well. Uh, I think that's a really, really bad move by the, by the centre right. I think that there's also an issue that um, there's often what you said is often true, but not necessarily at the top of the list. So I think parties do tend to send a lot of people uh, the middle middle and bottom of the list. There are people that don't think will get elected in national politics, but it suits them to have them around. And so these people go in there and they get a cushy job for um, five years, good pay and whatnot. Um, but what the biggest disconnect is, is what John said, is that you in Germany, only 27% of people, according to a poll, know who Manfred Weber is. So what is the point of having him run the country and for that matter, run the rest of the EU when he has no visibility? He d he means nothing to people. Like if you take Manfred Weber to Portugal, I think that off the top of my head, maybe a hundred people know who he is and we're lucky if that's the case. These people... And this is a very controversial idea, should be people that are recognized in 28 states. But for that to happen, European politics would have to shift and coverage of European politics would have to shift massively. I agree with all of that. But conversely, in comparison to how it was done before, yeah, where it was just basically a behind the scenes deal, this is a tiny step forward, right? It, it could become something good, but it hasn't become something good yet. I agree, by the way. So two points on that. Firstly, uh, what, what, what about the other commissioners, right? So if the, the, the head of the commission is, is appointed now through the parliamentary election, that's great, but are the rest of the commissioners still uh, capital U, capital B, unelected bureaucrats? They're still nominated by the national governments. Um, they do have to go through a hearing in front of the European Parliament. And each time over, I think, the last three or four times they've nominated the Commission, like back to the early 2000s anyway, the European Parliament has said there are some of these people we won't accept and has rejected them. So they are nominated by national governments, but there is a democratic control through the European Parliament. So the European Parliament will undoubtedly object to a few of them. Uh, look out for spots flying for the Polish, Hungarian and Italian nominees to the European Commission. 
what can what what were they rejected for? Just drunkenness or, or, or um, the so the last time uh, it was a Slovenian nominee got rejected, Alenka Bratisek, uh, because she went in went put under. Uh, questioning about her portfolio, for, I think she was nominated for Energy Commissioner, had relatively little idea about energy policy. Uh, previously, there was an Italian nominee, Rocco Bottiglione, um, who was going to be given a, a job about justice and, uh, and home affairs, and had very controversial views about the rights of gay and lesbian people, which therefore all of the left objected to him and said, hang on a minute, somebody who's that conservative shouldn't have that job, so they kicked him out. Uh, Lasso Kovac was a Hungarian nominee who got moved to another portfolio, so they said, we think He's an okay guy, but not in this portfolio, so it resulted in a kind of reshuffle. So there have been a variety of different reasons. Um, it tends to be if you come, if you have controversial views which are kind of outside of the European mainstream, you're more likely to get rejected, or if you're incredibly incompetent. Uh, to add to that, every country nominates one. So every country, country gets one commissioner, one portfolio. And so the idea is also to go back to the beginning, that everyone gets say, everyone is in the commission, everyone gets one area, every country in the commission gets an area of action. So, and they get to dominate their own people and so on and so on. And, and who decides which portfolios which countries get? The president. The president, basically. But then again, like John said, you have to go through, like if someone gets shuffled around and someone else takes over, then you'll have to, like there is quite a lot going on there in terms of making sure that enough people that are certain big countries get good or big portfolios, but also other things get accommodated in there. It's like an adaption of Animal Farm. All countries are equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> uh, I.e. if you come from a large country and you send a reasonably decent nominee, you're going to get a more juicy portfolio. So, to sum up, question 3.1 comes from Nico from Berlin, and he asked, so does this Spitzenkandidat process, this leading candidate process, does this help or hurt the credibility stroke visibility stroke gravitas of the European Parliament? This is quite interesting because actually there's some there's some unusual or unexpected uh, positions on this. Uh, most notably Emmanuel Macron, who we kind of think of as uh, somebody who is just pro all great democratic reforms in Europe and is going to ride in on the white horse and save everything. And uh, as I understand it, he's not very keen on the Spitzenkandidat system. Uh, why? You're shaking your head very. very I, I, you're <laughs> objecting to everything I say, which is good. Object. No. It's because Macron just wants to win. And he knew that he could never get hit whoever he wanted through the Spitzenkandidat process. So there's no principle here. This is just realpolitik. He's only in favour of European democracy. And as far as it helps him, and the Spitzenkandidat process didn't, and that's why he opposed it. But what, what is this? What is, are there any arguments against uh, having it? Does it, does it uh, serve to, to defend the two biggest parties and, and weaken the others? Does it, uh, it does, you know... I think we've talked about the pros before, so I think maybe we should go against with the cons. It's usually that the Spitzenkandidat process excludes smaller countries, which we all know, and that's just the case um, for the most part. Like it certainly excludes smaller countries, significantly smaller countries. Um, I think the process hasn't been as successful as like I think what John said is very true. Like it's helped. A little bit, because uh, you can peg something to that person. You can talk about what they've done. Vestager, for example, who was a great commissioner, has gotten a bit more of attention um, as a, a person who did, who's running for Alda, so the Liberals. Um, but say, I don't think it has 
I don't think it has hurt the credibility of the process particularly. I don't think it has improved it extraordinarily either. I think it's more of a neutral thing. It's more of a trying to make things more tangible. Of course, the horse trading is there, but I think that the amount of people who actually do know about the horse trading and Macron being against it or in favor of it because Realpolitik rules the EU and the council certainly, um, know that this isn't a particularly clear or straight process. I, I agree with all of that. And I also think that Macron, I think that the party political system in Europe is in enough flux so as to mean maybe not this election, but the election after. There could be a chance of a kind of an older liberal, en marche, centrist liberal grouping that will be in with a pretty good shot of ending up medium term of being the biggest group in the European Parliament, not just this time. It takes some time to build a movement Europe-wide. It's quicker to build one in France, it seems. Uh, so I think there's a view of impatience uh, from my coin this. Overall, my only negative thing about the Spitzenkanella process is it just doesn't really work yet. I, I just still think that the old, the old system is worse. Uh, and so therefore, it's a small step in the right direction, but it's not... In the end, it boils down to party politics. I'm just essentially quite disappointed, particularly with the way the EPP is playing it. Um, Give the Social Democrats their due. I do really think that Timmermans is about the best person that they could have chosen. And he's been quite determined and quite communicative in what he's been doing over the last few months. So he's injected a bit of energy into the Social Democrats campaign, uh, which is more than we would have expected perhaps three months ago. Although so invisible is he that I accidentally referred to him as Gisselblum earlier in this podcast, which, which says quite a lot about the success of the Spitzer Canada system. It says more about you than me. So, <laughs> so what would be the difference between a, a Manfred Weber EU and a Timmermans EU? Climate change. Um, that has been the central issue of the debates that have been held between these candidates so far. Um, and... Uh, Weber has been roundly attacked by a kind of threesome of, of Timmermans, Kuwait and Keller in the televised debates uh, because of his lack of solid commitment for the EU taking its climate um, uh, targets seriously. So to me, that would be the major would be the major difference if he were to become commission president rather than Weber. Again, going back to the token side of things, a big change that I think we've stopped talking about, or a big difference actually that you'd have is probably in terms of the kind of room, even though this is minimal, but the kind of room there might be in economic terms for smaller countries, given the reality of recovery and so on and so on, which is shaky at the moment. And obviously a lot of this goes back to the Eurozone and so on and so on. But the commission still has a huge impact on that. And I think Weber, because he's a city politician and the city was a lot stricter in that area, would probably be a lot harsher in terms of um, economic spending and so on and so on. What chance is there that uh, it won't be Viva? A little bit depends on what happens in the UK because there is no European People's Party party in the UK. And so it was thought that actually if Labour had a reasonable result in the UK that might actually be enough to kind of tip it over so the Social Democrats might be, a, might be the larger group. The decisive factor is going to be is where do the Liberals go? In... Based on previous behaviour, they're more likely to probably lean towards backing the EPP, although I'm not altogether certain that that will necessarily be the case. So you could theoretically have a kind of liberal centrist left arrangement between older, the Social Democrats, the left and the Greens to potentially back Timbermans 
if the European Parliament were unified to try to bulldoze their candidate through at the expense of the, the EPP. I don't think they're going to go for that, however. There's also rumours circulating in Brussels that the EPP would actually like to get rid of Viba and replace him with current uh, Brexit negotiator Barnier instead. But if they did that, they'd be setting themselves up for a big fight with the European Parliament. So I don't think that that one's going to happen. So Satya now, reluctantly, I still think that Viba is the, is the, pre- the favourite to get it. Question four. We've got to move on a bit here. Why do we never hear from commissioners? This is my my question, because I don't know who any of the commissioners are except for Juncker, and I don't understand why they're never in the news, even though they seem to be so powerful. I think more of them should be drunk and pervy, and then, and then more of them would get in the news like Juncker does, and then we would know about them more, and we could get really angry about them, like, oh, man, these people are awful, like we do about national politicians, and then everybody would vote in the European elections. That's my... Be more drunk, commissioners. That's what I say. As I mentioned before, there has been someone who's been on the news fairly often. Just you don't associate it with the. I, I just don't think you associate it with her and her position, which is Vestager, who's Margaret Vestager. She's Danish. She's the woman responsible for all of the fines on Google, Facebook, and so on and so on. And so she has actually done with a fairly uh, important portfolio. So DG competition. Uh, she's done a good job of making her work visible but i think it's because it's also a, co- a cause du jour so it's kind of the kind of thing that people care about right now um the reason i think you don't hear about it is that a lot of them are just like not particularly well-known people so they don't have a political profile they're they, they do within their own countries and within their own governments they're probably very capable people that's not the point but they're not necessarily particularly popular politicians and that's also one of the things that Juncker has tried to change in the Commission is to try to kind of get a kind of more unified point of view. Um, under his predecessor Barroso, individual commissioners had a greater freedom to act for good and for bad. It's been a much more tightly controlled commission this time, uh, and the total amount of legislative proposals that have come out of it has been considerably reduced. Um, so essentially there's been a kind of stronger central control from Juncker. And if you're Juncker, what would you like? A communicative, interesting politician like Vestaya? Or a boring one who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Well, you'd probably like the boring one because they're easier to control. And so in comparison, half of the ministers in the UK government say very little. Half of the ministers in the German government we would probably struggle to to mention. So the very idea that all of these people should all be interesting and compelling characters, um, I don't think that party politics works like that. But isn't that one of the reasons why there's so much scepticism or, or like about the EU? Yeah, but I think that that's a problem which afflicts all of our levels of politics, regional, national and European, is that it feels like all of the parties of the, call it the kind of traditional parties or parties of the mainstream, feel like they're out of ideas and feel like they're clapped out. And the type of people that, that are in them and succeed within them, very few of them are interesting and charismatic and compelling people. Um, and... It's therefore pretty damned hard, unless you're an EU nerd, to really get interested by what the Commission does on an everyday basis, uh, because a lot of what it does is technical, and a lot of the way it's communicated is not particularly exciting. But maybe that's not a bad thing. But perhaps we need more politicians like Vestia, who, who, you know, even if it's not, obviously all of them can't be drunk, and Vestia obviously isn't drunk, but uh, more of them who are doing kind of those big cause du jour stuff to get people interested because I mean it's cool what she did against the big tech companies 
I think that a big part of this, and I, I hate myself for saying this because I hate it when Germans specifically have this criticism, is that a lot of this comes down to how badly the European Union as a whole, but specifically the Commission, communicates. And it is by default, by the way they behave, by the way they think about things, they're not really trying... They to get attention, not really. I mean, they, they do, but in the most roundabout, bizarre way. As a journalist, I have literally had fights with spokespeople about the way they send certain things around and how I can access certain data. And I didn't get an answer to my criticism, which I bothered to write down. This is because it is... Let's let's be honest, it is very bureaucratic in the way that it works. And a lot of the people there are fairly bureaucratic. They're also very passionate about what they do, but they go about it in a way that is difficult to communicate. And what they do is difficult to communicate, and they don't make it easier on themselves, in my opinion. The thing is, but their incentive to actually communicate is actually pretty low, right? Because in the end, you they succeed or fail not according to their ability to communicate, unfortunately. And so therefore... That's part of the reason why ultimately much of the communications coming out of the European Union institutions are pretty boring. Okay. This question comes from the Europa Democratie Esperanto, EDE, on Twitter. And the question is, what's going on with Esperanto amongst those in charge? Um, I, 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 Esperanto is not an official language of the European Union. Why not? It's not an official language of any country in the European <laughs> Union. And the way the European Union's language policy works is um, that each country can choose which of its languages would be and it therefore gets all its documents translated into uh, those languages. Um, so why don't they just make all the MEPs learn Esperanto and then they would only you don't have to pay for one translator instead of 28? Honestly, Ben, I worked for an MEP in the European Parliament. Actually, I was recruited to work in that job because actually I spoke German and it was important to translate stuff in the Budgets Committee from, from German into English. Um, Try making an MEP learn even basic words of French to say hello to the security guards in the European Parliament building is already a bit of a push. Getting them to do it into, into Esperanto, I would love it to happen from an ethical point of view, but it's not going to happen. From my perspective, token small one again, it's very close to Portuguese, so I think everyone should learn it. <laughs> everyone should learn it, and then it'll make our lives much easier. Okay, good. Um, another uh, Twitter question. But it's not really a question. It just says, talk financial reform. What the EU needs but rarely discussed. No punctuation. That comes from Liang Kipley. Sorry, I didn't mean to be. It's fine. You don't have to do punctuation. Um, <laughs> but it's still, it's not really a question. It's more just, we're just it's an instruction to us all. We need to talk about financial reform. Oh, Kit. Yeah. Love, love a bit of financial <laughs> reform. It's, it's right up my, my alley. Um, we, we kind of decided that we could kind of take this, this question in, in various different ways. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just throw a big dynamite thing into the mix and say um, EU finance minister, good or bad thing? Should I go first? Yeah. Right, this is, I'd like to point out to the people who are listening to this, that this is how Kit and I met and how Ben got involved and how we became friends because I have very strong thoughts on this. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't think it's possible to have a finance minister, um, really. Um, and I think a lot of people... Taking, I'm going to take it back a little bit down. I, I think a lot of people 
profoundly misunderstand what the eurozone is and what the eu does and the multiple levels in which it works we don't have uh in terms of economic and financial policy enough unity and that's part of the problem of the euro part of the problem of the eurozone and why this crisis has dragged itself on quietly for such a long time um to have a minister uh, this person would be at best the same as our high commissioner for foreign affairs which is someone who's kind of like navigating between all of the countries and trying to figure out what common positions she can find to make things happen but it would be even harder because the design of the euro is so that we have a monetary union uh, but that's about it because no country wanted to give up their ability to control their own affairs, to set their own amount of spending, and so on and so on. This is why we have the random targets that have been put together in this Stability and Growth Pact. That's why we've had restrictive, painful policies imposed on all the countries throughout their bailouts. And, and this is why... At the core, we have our biggest problem in the way the Eurozone works. So the finance minister is just not possible. Do we need reform? Yes, absolutely. But the way forward is very, very difficult for uh, however long Germany keeps on being in charge of things, more or less. Okay, so just to wrap up that, or, or sort of summarise that, that debate over the finance minister, that we, it, it comes from what you just described, which is that the Eurozone is on the one hand, a coherent uh, currency, but on the other hand, is subject to 28 different uh, monetary financial policies, basically. Uh, not 28, because it's the Eurozone, but yeah, fiscal policy is wrong. Um, and the idea of a finance minister, you know, broadly put out into the room like that, is the idea that you could centralise that and it would be better better managed, but you're saying that's not possible and that's that's a silly idea. John? Yeah, I, um, I agree with that critique. I don't I would ideally like it happen, but I can exactly see the reasons why it can't. Um, the EU budget is also not large enough to do adequate fiscal transfers to have de help deal with a problems of a fiscal shock to a country. It's limited to 1.24% of the EU's gross national income. Uh, so that's something like about 2% of total public spending. Like the EU simply does not have the financial means at its disposal uh, to make the fiscal transfers that you would need. I'd like it to have, but I can also see the massive political barriers along the way. Look at what the German Liberals have been saying in this European election campaign. They're very opposed to that. So nice idea, but it's not going to come in the next five years or even in the next maybe decade or two. What is the Stability and Growth Pact? My question so, again. So the Stability and Growth Pact are the... So we just builds on what we just said. So that's why I asked the, it. <laughs> the eurozone, right? The eurozone ha, um, is essentially a, a unified, an area of unified monetary policy set by the European Central Bank, but there's no proper European fiscal policy. So the Stability and Growth Pact, which is a lot of stability and not very much growth, um, is uh, essentially the rules which basically say to the member states of the eurozone, these are the rules you have to respect on an everyday basis, so as you don't overspend. I.e., the credibility of the eurozone is only going to be guaranteed if the states within it don't run up a massive debt. So the two crucial rules of it is each year the budget deficit of each country in the Eurozone should not exceed 3% of that country's GDP, and the country's debt should not exceed 60% of that country's GDP, or should at least be declining. 
Uh, and so those are the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact, pretty much, or not pretty much all, but at least some of the European countries, notably France and Germany, have broken those rules of the Stability and Growth Pact. And those countries can be fined if they break the Stability and Growth Pact. Although it's a bit ridiculous, if you break the rules of, of, of being a of, of financial impropriety, to then be fined still further, that extends your fiscal position even further. So that makes the whole system of the Stability and Growth Pact a bit of a joke. Um, so essentially, it's still there, and, and it's still there as an aim. And at the moment, because all of our economies are roughly growing, it isn't currently a problem. But if there were to be a, uh, a recession in one or more countries or some banking crisis in the future, then this whole issue is going to be thrown into question again. It's not fair, is it, Sophia? No, it isn't, because the Stability and Growth Pact, the two key measures that John mentioned, the 3% and the 60%, not only have been uh, not followed for an awful long time by the bigger members without any sort of consequences, they've been strictly imposed on the smaller members, namely Greece and Portugal, but also Ireland, throughout the crisis, um, with a kind of restrictiveness that is nothing short of schizophrenic in economic terms. <laughs> um, so the fact is that we've put this together and the, like John said, there's very little growth in it, but also more importantly, the kind of room to maneuver that you have if your economy is the size of Germany within your 3% or if your economy is the size of Greece or Portugal is very, very, very big. Percentage-wise, it doesn't seem like that much, but those 0.5 between 2.5 of your government deficit in Germany are a lot more money than they are in Portugal. And throughout the crisis and even throughout the bailouts and now as we are starting to... as Portugal is starting to grow back. This can be the difference between someone having a very, very, an everyday person having a very, very tight rope around their neck or not so tight rope around, around their neck. And yet the EU, and by this, I mean both the commission and the fining because they have fined Portugal and then kind of told Portugal they don't need to pay the fine. They have kind of eased up on this a little bit because everyone's growing and that's fine. But the reality is these targets were put together, not randomly, but an average of how much people had grown in the 60s and the 70s by a bunch of economists who were literally looking at statistics and have very little in the way of understanding about how actual economic growth uh, can be achieved in a dynamic way. So that's that's the the current old system which doesn't work. Uh, we're saying a finance minister wouldn't work. Uh, what hope is there, and what are the different blocks? What what are their policies on this? What do they say that they're going to do about this? Nobody knows. No. <laughs> this is, <laughs> that's wow. A democratic deficit. If ever there was one. Uh, but th isn't this a big, also the main problem that everyone has with the EU, at least the smaller members, is that they feel like they're being dictated to by Brussels, no? Yeah, a, a bit, but there's, there are some other reasons for it as well, right? Because there's also kind of a party political game going on there as well, because Portugal's government was was more of the left or is currently more of the left which therefore is also therefore on the receiving end of the kind of austerity measures that the, the centre-right rather likes. Um, I think there's also a problem in the stability and growth pact as well as there's only a penalising mechanism. When our economies are growing we should be aiming to to a greater extent be balancing our books so there's no positive reward for being good there's only a negative sanction for being bad. Mm. Um, so and, but, but also bear in mind that although no one really likes the system there's no 
consensus, as far as we're aware, of exactly what should be done about it. There's some questions, the Greens, for example, in favour of, of debt mutualisation and euro bonds, which might be a partial solution. Um, but but this, the, these issues are currently not playing any central role in the European election campaign, at least not in Germany, the UK or France, the countries that I follow most closely. And the fact is that smaller countries don't really have the chance to dictate the debate on that front. Um, I mean, obviously, if you'd actually went to Portugal and someone actually engaged in this conversation, I can guarantee you there'd be a lot of people who have many thoughts on this. But what does Portugal and Greece, you know, what do we, we can't really do anything about the actual debate because it just doesn't, it doesn't translate enough. More importantly, I'd say, um, this is the crisis we've been Maybe kind of... Esperanto, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but this is the kind of the crisis that we've been sort of ignore The issue, the key central issue about the, our economy as a union that we've been ignoring since we decided to put together the euro um, as a currency, but also EMU. There's been... A huge list of economists who said the way you're designing this will not work and it will not it will not work it's not possible to run a currency in this way and this has been happening since 1991 uh, so I, it, it's also far too complex an issue for it to play out and for people to actually understand what this means like if you go to the average person on the street and i've had people in germany say this to me you're just spending our money and it could be going for schools and roads in germany and the it's it's incredibly difficult to have an informed conversation about this because it's such a complex system but when there are these complex issues you kind of want as a voter to have at least some kind of suggestion from a politician right so there must be at least one or two of the pervy drunks who who actually have an idea of what to do i mean what are your bonds for example in 10 words It's where you mutualize the debt of the Eurozone countries so it's all as a common pool of debt rather than debt for the, for the individual countries. But bear in mind that Germans, despite their bad behavior in the early years of Eurozone, think of themselves as the fiscally disciplined ones. And however many statistics you throw at them, they're not going to be dissuaded of that. The fact that Germany exports a load of stuff to the countries of Southern Europe, uh, it wouldn't have such a strong export were that not the case, it still is therefore annoyed that the countries of Southern Europe are running deficits in their trade. Well, actually, but it's German stuff that they're importing. So you have to get out of your national thinking and see the whole European Union system. And then we're back to the problem of not having compelling Europe-wide politicians. If you're a German politician, why do you really want to talk to your voters about debt mutualization? Because to a, to a German, to the German electorate, it feels scary. So you better not talk about it because you're never going to win votes that way. And a Portuguese politician will just capitalize on this by saying that Merkel and Schäuble are really terrible people and they're making us do all of these things that, and I should point this out, uh, we don't want to do because we didn't do anything wrong to begin with. And we did, as have the Greeks. And uh, so, you know, it's a complex issue that doesn't play out in national politics and is far too hard, like John is saying, to make people actually have a reasonable conversation about who benefits from it. Because Germans benefited from the Greek and the Portuguese mistakes that led to the crisis. This is all very much tied in together. But before you can reach that level of debate, it, the assumptions of what people actually understand are just too high. The threshold's too high. Question number nine. What this is, uh, we had two Brexit questions, but this one comes from Pat Don on Twitter. 
what can the MEPs who are elected this week do to either stop or deliver Brexit? What can they do? Nothing. Oh. No, sorry. It's a little bit more than that. Um, it looks like the withdrawal agreement is not going to get through Westminster. And although the EU hasn't come to terms with this yet, if Brexit is to happen, something's going to have to change there somehow. And that withdrawal agreement has to be approved by the European Parliament. Now, bear in mind, 751 MEPs, 73 of them from the UK, a chunk of them from the Brexit party that's just going to kick up a fuss and vote against anything. The total amount of impact of those British MEPs on the whole shape of Brexit, short term, is going to be, in the EU side, is going to be relatively little. The vote is going to have major impact in the UK, because if the Conservatives come in in fifth place, which is quite possible, that might actually mean that finally Theresa May's government bites the dust. And then you might ha- there might be the first domino to fall in, in, a, in a British political meltdown, which means it might have an indirect effect that way. But on the Brussels side, short term, very little. Brussels side, medium term, potentially more, because once Britain has left, or if Britain finally gets around to leaving, then it has to sign a trade deal about it for its future trading relationship with the European Union. And there the European Parliament will play a major role of what that shape of that trade deal will be. But there we're looking at kind of a sort of three to ten years time frame uh, for uh, signing off that trade deal. So in short, very little, unfortunately. What about the MEPs who are not in Britain? Can they do anything about it? Yeah, but they're also restricted in the same way. Um, So essentially, the leaders in the uh, European Council are the ones that are in control of the Brexit process. For example, when Britain hasn't got its act together and can't leave on 31st of October, it's going to be the leaders of the 27 other European Union countries that will decide whether Britain gets another extension or whether they're going to be out without a deal. Uh, The European Parliament can express its view on that. Uh, but it can't say yes or no either way. So the European Parliament's powers, unfortunately, over the Brexit process are, are rather restricted. Although, of course, Kiefer Hofstadt, the lead negotiator from the European Parliament, likes to make a lot of noise uh, and try and make himself sound important. Can you do a, a Kiefer Hofstadt impression for us? Ah, well, Mr. Orban, I used to know you. I used to know you when he's, you were... He's a, a, he's, he's a Dutch speaker, not a French speaker. Oh, he's a Johnny Foreigner, isn't he? <laughs> Uh, Melanie Hurst also on Twitter wants to know uh, why is no one promoting what continued membership of the EU means for the UK? I would argue that actually finally the Liberal Democrats and the Greens actually are and it's taken a long time to get to that point because the Conservatives and Labour were still miles ahead of everyone else in the opinion polls up until recently But now both Labour and the Tories are taking a hit and the Liberals and the Greens are gaming and both of them are explicitly pro-EU and are defending what the EU is largely about. I could quibble about some of the ways they communicate about it, but largely speaking, they're actually being pretty fair and pretty honest about the way the European Union works. And even the Greens are even standing up for freedom of movement. So I would say that in the last month or so, we finally begin to see some change in that respect. To add to that, um, this is, again, mostly a national affair. There's been plenty of people on this side of the barricade. I mean, the continental side of things, Britain, um, that <laughs> the Europeans over here 
that have men have been having this conversation for years and talking about it. And it's, again, marred by it's completely a political process that happens at a national level. So when the conversation is dominated by parties who are trying to cater to their electorate, like the conservatives, like Labour, and trying to make a political win out of this, you're not going to have a genuine debate about it. There's been plenty of talk and concern about Brexit and questions about how you're going to do this, how you're going to pull this off. How do you not understand that there are 27 other countries that need to be considered and you're threatening their cohesion, stability and the inner workings of an institution by leaving and wanting to leave in a certain way. But people talking doesn't mean that someone else will listen at the other end. And I would add, this is kind of one of the broader reasons why Brexit happened in the first place is the fact that over the years in, in most countries, but particularly in Britain, even at European elections, people didn't talk about the EU and nobody really. So when you had a campaign with whether to leave it or not, still nobody talked really about the EU and what it was and what it did. And, and so as boring as all this stuff may be, it is kind of important that we start maybe trying to understand it is the overriding point. Yeah. And one final question from Till, who is a German. If you want to see the system change in the EU, do you need to change the institutions themselves or is change possible by just changing the personnel? My position on this is very, very clear. It's more pervy drunks. <laughs> so you, you say get more pervy drunks into the European Commission. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the drunks, uh, but I think it... I think there's a lot more you could do with within the structures that you've currently got. Um, I I would very much like to see the Commission President not being from the centre right, um, and to see what you could do in that respect. I'm not holding my breath, but I would very much like to see that a, a Liberal or a Social Democrat. Um, that might give the European European Union a, a, a bit of a kick. Um, it's also the case that although they're kind of secondary level issues, they're not the things that kind of really make up the headlines. There are a number of areas, particularly digital policy, also food and food safety, for example, uh, matters relating to the budget and agriculture policy, which are very, very important uh, for the next couple of years. Um, those are issues where I'd like to see more intervention from the European Commission. Juncker said, I want to be big on the big things and small on the small things. That basically meant... I'm not going to, if, if in doubt, I'm not going to pass any legislation. Uh, there are certain things that, for example, like alcohol labelling, for example, the fact you don't know how many calories are in your bottle of beer still, whereas you do know how many calories are in your bottle of Coke, is a bit of an anomaly in the European Union. Some of those sorts of things about uh, what, what consumers need in the single market, there I think we need some more legislation again. There's power to do it, you just need a commission that will be willing to take those things seriously. I mostly agree with John because I'm not a fan of destroying systems. And I think they're actually, and this is a very unpopular position I know for someone who considers himself on their left. Um, I do think structures and institutions are very, very hard to build up. And I think that there's now a tendency for some people or many people on the left to be like, the system's all rotten and you need to do away with it. I think the system does need to change, uh, but I think the people in it also, if they're different people, they can definitely do a lot more. I think the example I keep coming back to is Vestager, who kind of going back to what John said, 
picked up an area of policy where there is really no power for a small country or even a big country for that matter to act on its own against something like Google or Facebook. And she made it a staple of European policy, an area where it makes sense, like roaming. Uh, and I think that these things are the areas where you can have a bit of both to answer that question. You can have more people who want to do more things and those people can influence the system to change a little bit more. Um, I think the question about this ultimately, though, is a question about what kind of European Union you want and what kind of European project you see. Is it an ever closer union? And if the UK leaves, can it be an even closer union? Because the UK has always kind of been, uh, at times more than others, but a voice that is like, nah, let's not, uh, let's not go f any further. Um, or do you think that it should continue to be a transnational organization that has a very weird nature it's not a government even though the federalist logic is there it's not one um and it's one where a lot of the implementation a lot of what actually happens with what is decided in brussels is then applied very differently across the 28 members so this is one of those questions that i think ties back to what do you want from the eu one what, what kind of eu do you want to see What if, what if I really wanted a really strong, like a United States of Europe? Why can we do that with this so system? European Federalists, can't we? Well, no European Federalist Party. You probably ought to vote for the Greens. Vote for the Greens. <laughs> okay. Um, good. Kit, anything else? Yeah, I mean, I'd sort of, I guess, pick up what Svart was saying and, and uh, then wrap up some of the points we had earlier about uh, the way the whole thing works and the way that national governments quite often tailor to national vote bases and uh, therefore ignore European uh, issues, which means that the vote bases never hear about it, European issues, and often means that European issues don't get solved. They just kind of get muddled on with. And the biggest way of changing this, if you want to change the EU or if you want to protect the EU or defend it or whatever, is to actually demand as a voter things. So yeah, as I said, think about what kind of EU you want, inform yourself about the EU, and actually, as a voter, try and uh, demand things, go and protest and engage a little bit more with, with uh, what the European issues are. Um, we're very lucky that we've at least got European elections, because in no other international organisation are there even elections, so not in NATO or the UN or anything like that. Also, it's the good we don't have NATO elections. So we like <laughs> we, we go and bomb Iran. <laughs> um, so, so be grateful for that. I've also generally found, particularly the European Parliament and most the MEPs within it, to be a relatively open Parliament. You can follow what it does via live streams. Members of the European Parliament are generally open to being invited to meetings, replying to letters that you may send them. Uh, so in that regard, it's certainly in my experience living in Germany, the European Parliament for me is considerably more open than the Bundestag is, for example. Um, and I think the final point is also that the renewed attention in politics in general to the need to do something about climate change and to take climate policy seriously is to a certain extent being reflected in the support for parties in the European elections. It's really obviously clearly something you can only begin to grapple with, well, ideally globally, but Europe is at least a start. 
Um, and so if you take that as a very clearly transnational issue seriously, then you need to take the European Parliament seriously, and therefore you've at least got to go and vote in the European elections. And I think that kind of logic and the centrality of the, of the climate issue in our current political debates at least gives us solid logic about why at least going to vote on the 23rd of May if you're in Britain or 26th if you're in Germany is at least the rationale is a clear one. Brilliant. So go and vote, everyone. It's uh, this Thursday to Sunday. And um, uh, thank you very much to everyone. This was very informative for me. Uh, thanks, Sophia. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Kit. Thank you. And thanks very much, John Worth. Thank you. Go to johnworth.eu if you'd like to read his blog. <laughs> and also listen to Megan's Megacan if you'd like to listen to me. Bye. <laughs>